0: Hey, it's Rebecca. Before we begin, I want to let you know that we are overwhelmed by your love and support and kind comments on social media. And I want to ask you for a quick favor please leave us a review. It really does help
1: us out and it helps others discover the podcast too. And here's this week's show I cried Mm -hmm. through the interview, and that was the moment I knew I wanted to be a journalist. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each
0: week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. Founders, actors, athletes, chefs, comedians, musicians. Bottom line, these are women who win. So how are they doing it? We're taking you way beyond the bios, looking at their struggles, triumphs, risks, biggest mistakes, and some of the worst advice they've heard along the way. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Today, we're joined by a true journalist whose career has taken her to every corner of the earth. When news breaks, she is often the first one out the door, reporting on the most serious stories of our time, from terror attacks to natural disasters and school shootings to lighter-hearted stories of courage and redemption at the Olympics. She's even covered the birth of at least one royal baby, there might be others, and each morning she brings us the top stories of the day on Good Morning America. She is also a fellow Midwesterner, at least for the earlier part of her life, who bravely battled cancer, sharing her story in her New York Times bestselling book, Better, How I Let Go of Control, Held On to Hope, and Found Joy in My Darkest Hour. And in addition to this incredible career and life that she's built, she is also a devoted mom and wife. I want to welcome my friend and ABC News colleague, Good Morning America news anchor, Amy Robach. Welcome. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm thrilled to have you here. I have so many questions for you, and I wanted to begin on your childhood. You were born in Lansing, Michigan, grew up in St. Louis, moved
1: to Atlanta in high school. Correct. I consider myself a hybrid of the (laughs) Midwest and the South. You get it all covered. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's the same stock of people. People, you know, uh, salt of the earth. I learned my financial health there. You know, we are very conservative with our money. I, I'm a saver. I'm not a spender. And just how I operate in life, I, I definitely feel more like a Midwesterner than a New Yorker, for sure. I mean, I every time I'm on a plane to Chicago or somewhere to the Midwest when I'm um, traveling for work. The person sitting next to me will often say, so how did you like your visit here? No one thinks I'm a New Yorker, <laughs> which I always get offended by. I'm like, you don't think that I could live here? I'm hard, man. I can, I can beat them
0: down if They're I need like, no, to. No,
1: you totally look like you live in Chicago. Did you always want to be a journalist? I wanted to be a performer. I loved acting. I loved the stage. My aunt and uncle are theater directors. My, I have several cousins in the theater. And so I kind of grew up doing summer theater and amateur theater. And so I thought I wanted to be an actor. And that was my plan going to college. And I thought journalism would be my backup. The thing that made your family
0: happy, that you had a legitimate job search underway for a broadcast journalism major at the University of Georgia.
1: Correct. So I, And it wasn't until I got to my senior year in college that I actually started practicing journalism. We put on a thing called University News. And <laughs> every day at 5 o'clock, we would tape it for 30 minutes. It went to every dorm room later that evening. And we had to be on the ball. Like I had to go to classes and also try to put together a story. And my first story assignment was about a young woman who overdosed on ecstasy. And I saw it in the local paper, the red and black. And I had to cross-reference her name and her address and her phone number. It had to be kind of crafty because we didn't have computers or cell phones back then, looking up on the back of a phone book. And then I had to pull out a big map because we didn't have GPS and try to find her house because I thought I'll just go out there and see if her roommates will talk to me about what happened and maybe I can prevent – one person from doing drugs tonight. Mm -hmm. That was the thought. And when I got there, I saw a man pulling furniture out of the house and putting it into his pickup truck. And I thought, oh my goodness, is that her father? I don't know if I have the guts to go up and say anything to him, but I got myself out of the car and I just said, I'm Amy Robach. I'm with University News. Do you happen to know the young woman who OD'd last night? And he said, that's my daughter. And his chin started shaking. And I said to him, will you talk to me? This story will go into every dorm room tonight, and I I feel like if, if we do this right, if I do this right, and you tell your story, we can prevent someone from doing drugs tonight. And he looked at me and he said, I'll do it. And he cried through the entire interview. I cried Mm -hmm. through the interview, and that was the moment I knew I wanted to be a journalist because I thought, wow, what an incredible honor to have this man's story, this woman's story, and what an incredible responsibility to have the story and tell it correctly so that it could change lives and empower people or change people's decisions. And I just realized the weight of what we do now every day as a journalist, and I just thought, there's nothing else I want to do. And that was the moment that I knew I was going to become a journalist and
0: and never looked at acting again. And I can see it in your eyes. It still makes you emotional to think about that experience. And I think there's a tension in it that you bring up as a journalist, because we do go into these areas that are so delicate. And there are people feeling real emotions about something that happened to them and respecting that story in addition to telling the story that the world is interested in hearing and wanting to understand and to your point helping people using maybe a terrible experience to help others not go through that how do you balance that in your
1: mind i know that for every story that's told there's a there's a reaction and you can find a way to make it a positive one i know that it's really hard to walk into so many of these stories And check your emotion at the door. I can't, and I don't. My mom told me when I was little, never apologize for your tears because they're powerful. And I really believe that. And when I walk into someone's home who has just experienced the unthinkable, the worst tragedy possible, losing a child, losing a loved one, you have to respect what they're going through. And also in telling their story, emotion is a huge part of it. It's what moves people. It's what changes people's minds. It's what makes people listen and take notice and think, what can we do better? How can we prevent this? How can we stop this from happening again? So I, I never shy away from my emotions. I know a few times, you ha- I mean, you have to remain professional. There have been a couple of times in my life in Newtown, Connecticut comes to mind, first and foremost, where I actually have to dig my fingernails into my palms sometimes to try and pull back because I'm actually affecting the audio. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's how tough it is to hear some people's stories and I don't ever want to be a distraction but I really try to immerse myself in the story and really f- feel as much as I can what these parents are feeling and of course once you're a parent yourself it's not hard at all to do that because you immediately think what if that happened to me and so it's I try to separate it just in terms of not being a distraction but I also try to feel it and live it and feel it and breathe it because I think it helps tell the story if You can relate. If I can relate, the person watching can relate, and the story is going to be more powerful. You've also interviewed
0: pretty much every leader under the sun, every world leader. You've interviewed a ton of celebrities. I can't think of a celebrity that you probably haven't had a conversation with at this point.
1: Are there any standouts? For me, I think my favorite interview I've ever done so far has been with Malala Yousafzai. And I've interviewed her several times, but my favorite one actually – came at a price. I had to give up the latter half of my Italian vacation (laughs) because, you know, when you get these opportunities, they don't always come at convenient times. So you got the call when you're in the middle of Italy on vacation? Right. I was actually with my girlfriends, my daughters, my mom, my aunt. It was my victory vacation after finishing my chemo treatments. And so it was a really big deal and I had planned it for some time. And then I get the opportunity to go to Nigeria To interview Malala Yousafzai, it was her 17th birthday, and she was flying there to shine a light on the girls who had been kidnapped by Boko Haram. And these were the schoolgirls who were taken in the northern part of the country, and many of them still haven't been heard from to date. And she wanted to shine the spotlight on their disappearance and also continue her message that every woman, every girl in this world deserves an education has the right to an education and so I thought oh my gosh to go to Nigeria to talk to her to get to talk to some of these families whose daughters are missing and we actually had access to some of the girls who had escaped and it was just for me a dream assignment because it had everything I wanted to do I wanted to talk about issues that are sometimes hard to get on the air and talk to this remarkable young woman Who had survived the unthinkable and yet continued to speak out the bravery, the courage that this young teenager emitted was unbelievable and it was amazing. And I'll never forget what she told me. She said, the Taliban tried to silence the voice of one young girl. And instead, they heard the voices of hundreds of thousands. And it was just a reminder that we all face criticism, and I'm not even comparing any kind of criticism I've received or you've received to what this young woman has been through. But it was just a reminder that when people want you to be quiet, when they want to silence you, when they don't agree with what you're saying, you can't let them deter you. You have to keep speaking up and speaking out.
0: So powerful. Those types of interviews, I think, are ultimately why we do this job. Right, and why we leave Italy. Right, exactly. (laughs) What was the conversation, by the way, when you went to the family and friends and your children? What did you say to them?
1: I went to my mom and I said, Mom, are you okay with this? Because I actually had to change a lot of people's flights. I had to change my daughter's flights, my mom's flight, because they didn't want to go to Rome without me. We were going to do a second little Detour to Rome. And so I told them, I said, you know, another time, another day, but this is just something that I can't pass up and I hope you understand. And they totally did. And they were really great about it. And I felt guilty about it. It still makes me cringe a little. I wish it could have come at a different time, but that's just what usually happens. I mean, look, I was on vacation at Turks and Caicos and had to drop everything and go to Detroit, uh, ultimately to Kalamazoo. To uh, I got an incredible opportunity to interview a serial killer who we had been doing an entire hour on and we hadn't had access to him for 2020, before then. it was for Dateline, actually. Oh, other that, that other excuse that me, other network I the other for. place, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was, and then that what, that was one of the most incredible interviews I've ever done in my entire life, just the, the sheer staring evil down, truly, like in, in a small jail cell. So I mean, I so I cut I left my husband and my daughters in like a tropical, you know, beautiful environment. And it was Easter. And I left the day. I was like, bye. You know, that's what we do. But it, I don't regret that at all, either, because it was such an incredible interview to experience that. I feel like I got my minor in poli sci. But sometimes I think I should have gotten my minor in psychology, because I feel like sometimes that's what we are, we're almost therapists. We're trying to ask those questions that bring about truth and uh, real emotion and trying to get answers to questions that the people oftentimes who are sitting across from you don't want to answer. And I thought I should have gotten my degree in psychology. So if there are any journalism majors out there, it's a really good minor.
0: You started out in South Carolina, general assignment reporter. What did would you tell yourself back then? If you could go back and have a conversation with the Amy of 95.
1: I think it's something a lot of us say when you look back. I was so concerned about being perfect. I mean, accurate, Mm -hmm. yes. You Mm -hmm. want to always be accurate. And I was very good at that, but I I didn't ever want to mess up. I didn't ever want to bobble a word. And I would really get nervous trying to over-memorize and make sure everything I said was perfect. And what I've realized, when I make mistakes or when I screw up, that's sometimes the most memorable part of whatever I've done because I think when you can laugh at yourself or you can give yourself a break or you can say, well, what just came out of my mouth? It just makes you that much more real and relatable. And when you don't worry so much about making mistakes, you make less of them. Mm-hmm. And I just think I was so I, – I wanted to be you know, Diane Sawyer really and truly and and I just wanted to be perfect at everything I did and I just wish I would have allowed myself – to make a few more mistakes and get a lot less nervous. Oh, my gosh. When I first started, my mouth would go dry. (laughs) I felt like I was going to faint. My knees would wobble beneath me. The first time I anchored, I remember thinking I was going to vomit when I opened my mouth. And it was all a fear of making a mistake. And if you think about it, it was just like, please don't let anyone know um, that I'm not as smart (laughs) as I want them to think I am or that, you know, I'm not as commanding as I wish I could be. You know, you just, you, you have an idea of what you're supposed to do or what you're supposed to be and you're afraid to just let yourself be who you are and, and and give people what you know and nothing more.
0: A lot of the time, I think the magic, you mentioned like sometimes it's the mistakes that make it, but also when you break down those rules of like, this has to be the way that everything happens, all of a sudden you open yourself up to a completely different world of, of
1: your craft, I think. Oh my gosh, when you can just be natural And just say what you've experienced. I mean, when you're on the, you know, they're on the ground. When people give you a script to read, it's it's, it's actually very stressful because you have to memorize these lines. I hate memorizing. It's silly, right? I I hate it. it, That's why if I wanted to do that, I should have become an actress. And so then you would finally say, you know, I'm not going to read that script. I'm actually just going to tell the viewers, what I just experienced or what I just saw. And when you can do that, it's so freeing because it's what we should be doing anyway. But sometimes we get all... I mean, I I would write my own scripts, but I would then try to memorize them, and then I would get all nervous. So it would have been nice. I I would have avoided a lot of headaches and heartache if I had just relaxed, and let it happen. But now you do every day.
0: <laughs> you And you never waver. That's the thing. Do you ever get nervous anymore?
1: I don't get nervous anymore. But it's taken a very long time. And I think the first time I do anything, I'm nervous. Like the first time I filled in for David Muir, I think it was Diane Sawyer back then and did World News. You've anchored the show. you know. And when I first filled in for Brian Williams back at the other show at NBC at Nightly News, I, you know, even if I didn't get nervous normally, when I sat in that seat or had that responsibility, Oh my gosh. (laughs) I I think I had panic attacks. So, you know, but I think now that I've done all of that, um, I think the only thing that could get me nervous is maybe perhaps interviewing the president or doing something live where you've got a, you know, a, a big interview, a big get, and you have to hit certain times and you have to get things right. It's a little nerve wracking sometimes when you have really important figures you're interviewing and you're in massive time constraints. Right. That will make me a little nervous. Because you know you have to get certain questions. It's not a relaxed environment. And I think the key to avoiding that is just to stop thinking about what people are saying about your questions, how you're being judged. I think because especially with social media, you know, you're constantly being judged in real time. I mean I'll be sitting in, you know, at Good Morning America and I'll see tweets where people are telling me that I mispronounced something or that I'm completely wrong or how dare I make fun of Tom Brady, and I should be, you know, you, you know, any, any, like, even if you're being funny, you're making a quip, people don't like it; they take it personally, and so you can get their feedback. Most of it negative, usually. If they took the time to go onto Twitter, <laughs> and you can't let it phase you. So I think that's been interesting, and, I, and I'm much better at that now too. But it's, it's that's a very difficult component to digest, um, especially when you're young and you're you know, you're starting out in the business. I can't imagine having had that back then. That would have made it 10 times worse.
0: You have a beautiful family, and this is a pretty public job nowadays. To your point, you're hearing tweets all day long, but even beyond that, you have to use social media to some extent to put your name out there, to continue sharing your stories with people. How do you balance that in your mind?
1: Well, you know, yeah, it's always a constant struggle to figure out how much do you give of your personal life and how much do you keep yourself. But it's interesting because once I shared my cancer journey, that's, about as personal as it gets. I mean, everyone was literally talking about my boobs. Um, You know, not something (laughs) I ever thought would be, you know, I I remember one time my former colleague was like, do I really have to read about whether or not you got your nipples removed? I mean, and then now I have to look at you right now. And I just started laughing because, you know, it, it was just every detail got out. And I think at a certain point, you just let it go. And I knew that by giving this information, it was going to help people. It was going to save lives. It was going to get the word out that women everywhere had to take their health seriously, that cancer does not discriminate. So you just kind of put that aside and say it's worth it. It's worth it. Now, with my kids, look, my daughter is turning 14 this month. My other daughter's 10. They're on social media. They don't – I have to (laughs) – they get really upset with me if I put a picture out there that they don't like because they say, Mom, you have – like hundreds of thousands of followers so it's really not cool if you put a picture out there that we don't like. So I'm learning actually how to deal with their privacy because they want it. And I want to say how cute they look and they don't like that so much. So I mean, I I put a, a little bit out there. I don't put a lot. I think it's okay to share a little bit, but as long as I get their permission, Rebecca, as long as I get their permission, I can put a little bit out there.
0: You, you know, you bring up your battle with cancer and you were so brave throughout the entire thing watching you as your colleague go through this, I was so proud of you because just knowing the pain and the struggle that you were very likely going through at the time, you were so powerful and you were a sign of somebody who can take it on and thrive in the face of all of the chaos. And it was a really incredible thing and moving and powerful thing to see. How do you think all of that has
1: changed you now? I am a completely different person than I was before cancer. It's funny. When people say, oh, God, it's my birthday. I'm turning 45 or I'm turning 50 and they're complaining and I get that that's such a a natural thing to do. I cringe. And I've learned to celebrate every year, every wrinkle because it's a gift. Aging is a gift. I've learned uh, to really – change my thinking about getting older, first of all, because I don't take it for granted. I know that all we have is right now. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not really in any other position than anyone else because any one of us could have something happen to us. We could get cancer. We could fall ill. There's 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 no knowing what's around the bend. And so because I live in six-month increments now, every six months I get a blood test for the rest of my life. And I have to hold my breath for a couple days to see if the cancer came back. And it's such a different way to live. And instead of getting upset, I mean, I do get upset. I do. I, during those few days, I do. I'm going to be honest, I'm emotional, and I'm kind of a wreck. But then what it is, is a reset button for me to realize that I have right now, and I'm going to live differently. And when you are fighting for your life, and you're afraid that you're going to die, you learn how to live. And that is the truth. So I took my daughter to London for her 13th birthday. The Midwest girl in me would never have done that. That would have been so indulgent. But I thought, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to be in good health when she graduates from high school, maybe when you would typically do something like that. I don't know what I'm going to be like a year from now. So for last spring break, we went to Belize and we swam with sharks. These are things that I never would have done. And so I found myself living in a way that I wouldn't have allowed myself to before because I would have thought it was too indulgent. I would have thought it was too extreme. And now I'm just saying, what am I waiting for? Why am I not going to go live the way I want to live now? If you thought you had six months left of health, or a year left of health. You would live differently, right? Absolutely. That's exactly how I live. I live in six month increments, and I and it's not a negative thing. It's not a morose thing. My mom hates when I say I feel like I have a noose over my head, and I can always see it. But I but it's true. I do, and I use it for good. When I start getting really mad at my kids, or I feel like screaming, or getting you know complaining about something that actually isn't that big of a deal, I literally I see that noose and I think. Is it worth it? No, it's not. This is something that's so trivial and so silly, and I am not going to lose my cool over this, and I'm not going to upset everyone around me because of this, and I'm not going to be negative over this. And so it's been a that look, cancer sucks. There's very little that's good about it, but that is the silver lining, that you learn how to live better. And every single cancer survivor and thriver who I have met over the last three years, I'm telling you – they smile differently. They laugh harder. There is a warmth and a gratefulness about them that is palpable. And it's beautiful. And I love it because it's something that we all share as survivors together because we know, we know the secret about how to live.
0: I bet you've received a lot of advice along the way perhaps some of that on the journey through cancer. What was the worst advice that someone gave you along the way?
1: Oh, man, that's that's a tough question. As I'm thinking about what the worst advice is, I remember initially one of the best pieces of advice I got was from Deborah Norville. She was a Grady College grad at the University of Georgia, and she spoke to our journalism class as we were graduating. And she had just been let go from the Today Show in a pretty dramatic fashion um, after taking over for Jane Pauly, Katie Couric came in, and she was kicked to the curb and spoken uh, of uh, in a very (laughs) negative way. She got up there and she told us, as journalists, I can tell you this much, you will never regret your silences. And I thought that was so Hmm. cool because, look, we're all a bunch of people who are paid to talk about other people. You put all of us into a newsroom, and if anything happens, you, you can imagine how we all react as journalists people start talking they start saying things and most of the times not so nice things and so she just said sometimes you just need to listen and not talk and not participate because she was just talking about how hurtful it was for her to hear all the things that she heard from people who she thought were her friends and then just as she went further in her life she said it's just so much better to say nothing in so many instances, and I and I remembered that, and certain moments would come up in these local newsrooms and even in network news, and I thought, I'm never gonna regret not talking right now, and so I'm not gonna talk, and that's served me very well. I, I really respect that. I think so much of the time people talk about the opposite, rising
0: to the occasion, speaking up, and in this world where so many people are talking and sharing opinions without giving a lot of thought to those opinions, I will include myself in that at times as well. I think we're all guilty of it.
1: Oh, I'm guilty it's, of it, too. It's, believe me. <laughs>
0: uh, but it's, it's really good advice. And I hope anyone on Twitter is listening right now. <laughs> Actually, <But> like, <laughs> it would really apply to people who feel like tweeting something mean, you'll never regret your silences. Yeah, exactly. I know you're a singer, right? Well. <laughs> I know you're a singer. I'm not going to make you sing here. Don't worry. Um, do you do karaoke?
1: Well, it's funny, you should ask. Did you happen to see my Instagram? I saw an
0: Instagram of you doing <laughs> karaoke, so then I was like, okay, I can definitely ask this question.
1: Yes, I just was uh, enjoying the duets karaoke <laughs> private room. What is your go-to karaoke song? Well, I tend to go for Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer because it's an easy one to sing. It's it's hard to to mess that one up but I mean I also love a Bonnie Tyler Total Eclipse of the Heart Paradise by the Dashboard Light by Meatloaf Um, Sarah Haynes and I got into Fight Song Um, we we really enjoyed that one but I don't think we (laughs) sounded too great at it um, there were several. I could keep but going. Who
0: remember, <laughs> uh, that's the fun of karaoke. There's so many options, especially as the night goes on.
1: Yeah, in fact, all the pictures. I was a little embarrassed because the microphone was pretty much in my hand the entire night. I was like, could I not have given that to someone else? <laughs> I yeah, that's why I could just rattle off four songs. I could rattle off ten more songs. We just, I think we were there for five hours. Whoa. <laughs>
0: Five hours? When did this start? (laughs) At 10 p.m.
1: and it ended at, uh, well, I got home at 3 a.m. Way to go. Yeah. Seizing the moment. Exactly. I mean, that's my point. I will tell you this, and my friends, I, I told my husband I want at my funeral for them to say, Amy was the last person on the dance floor. She was the last one at the party. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing sometimes, but I am. I am always the last one there because I don't want the night to end if I'm having fun. Going to sleep is like... I don't know, a little bit of death. I want to enjoy as much as I can. In fact, I had my producer when we were in Rio. I would want to go out and go samba dancing. And she was like, she was crying. She's like, Amy, I'm so tired. I was like, you're 30. (laughs) What do you mean you're tired? But I just, I don't have time to be tired. I just, I want to experience as much as I can. It's just part of, I've always been a little bit like that. But now I'm kind of on steroids. You've given me a whole new outlook. I'm
0: staying out late this weekend <laughs> thanks to you. Amy Robach, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for
1: having me. And let people know where they can find you online. At A. Robach is my Twitter handle and A.J. Robach because of my middle name, which I don't know why I did that. A.J. Robach on Instagram. What is your middle name? It's I, I knew you were going to ask that. I set you right up for it. Um, it's Joanne. It's not one of my favorites, but my mom's name is Joan, and so she was trying to get put her name in my name so people used to tease me and call me Amy Joe and it really made me mad so Amy Joanne robach
0: we will not call you Amy Joe Amy robach thank you <laughs> thank you thanks so much for listening to another episode of no limits if you like what you heard please make sure to subscribe rate us tell your friends and if there's someone you think we should have on the show let me know you can tweet me at Rebecca Jarvis and of course you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook Instagram and Snapchat And special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. It is a big one. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Michelle Bancardo, Steve Jones, Erica Scott, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.